Good morning, church. Man, I'm so glad that you're here today. The family of God in one setting, one place, where we can lean on one another and encourage one another on the journey. Uh, Many of you already know, but uh, of course, last Monday we lost our worship minister, Brad Steele, uh, and there will be an empty spot here for a while, certainly, uh, for his joy that he brought to worship, the way that he led uh, worship, but he would want us to be together today. He would hate all this attention that he is getting. He would want us to be together as the family of God today to praise our Lord and Savior, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, to come together as the family of God together around the table to dig into the Word of God and to lift our voices to God to praise His name. Amen? You agree with that? Yes. And so we're going to do that today as we continue in our worship. This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, and so I hope you've got your Bibles and will turn with me there. We'll be there in just a few moments. You know, there are moments probably you've had in your life as we continue this journey through the book of Romans. We're in week two. But you've had in your life where maybe you were a little embarrassed to be a Christian. Maybe you were a little taken back to talk about the story of Christ in your own life. Maybe in your friend circle at school. You might remember those moments at uh, high school or college or maybe it was just last week. But Paul reminds us in his letters, we'll uncover today, that there's nothing to be ashamed about when it comes to the story of Jesus Christ. That you and I have been granted so very much because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Paul writes to another church in a town called Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, he says in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Man, isn't that something to say amen about? I mean, there is power in what God has done for us. There is power in the cross. There is power in Jesus Christ and his cleansing blood in our lives to get us where we need to be, and that is in a right relationship with God. Now, there may be some that are new to our room this morning, and maybe you, are, uh, you grew up and you were unchurched, and you're just discovering what church looks like, a family, spiritual family looks like, and maybe you're confused or have questions about why certain things happen. For instance, why every Sunday do we pass uh, around some crackers and some grape juice and partake of that? Maybe you're wondering why that we uh, fully dunk someone underwater and bring them up and pronounce new life. Maybe you're wondering why we look at an ancient document and call it the blueprint for life. There are moments where we have questions, but there are some of us who grew up in church all of our life, and we've been participating in these incredible moments that have been meaningful for 2,000 years, yet in our own life it can become rote. We just kind of go through the motions. We've forgotten the importance and the depth of why we do what we do to celebrate a risen Savior and the family of God together. For some of us, we sing these songs every Sunday morning, and Brad would admonish us to think about what we are singing as we lift our voices and our hearts to God, because if we're not careful, those words on the screen become just that, words on a screen not transformational in any way. And so the call that Paul is going to give us today is to remind us that each and every day is a blessing from God. It is a moment that we are able to talk to his creation, other people about the hope and peace they can have in Jesus Christ. It's to tell that story that is the hope of 
Jesus Christ. And my hope is in this series that Jesus will become more than just a proposition, that it will be a life-changing event, that in your life, the emotions will tug on your heartstrings and pull you in a direction that God wants you to go. It'll be a moment to joyfully turn your life around. And we watched Brad every Sunday on this stage in his own life. If you ever got to talk to him off in a corner, he was a quiet, reserved, kind of shy guy. But when he got on this stage talking about the story of Jesus Christ and song, Oh, he was joyful. He was excited about being a part of the kingdom of God. And we're called to share his excitement. Romans is a little different letter for Paul. Typically, in all the letters that Paul wrote, and we have uh, 13 of them in our New Testament, he typically wrote to a church where he had already been, a place where he started the church, established the church. Many of the members, he would have baptized them. He taught them for lengths of time about how to live this life in Jesus Christ. This letter to the church in Rome, though, is probably the most uh, doctrinally complete letter that we have from Paul. He takes extra time to explain the power of the cross and the power of what Jesus Christ has done for us in our own life. He explains why we need to take on the image of Jesus, that we need to imitate him in every way. If you study church history at all, what what you discover along the way, and I love church history. If you've not done that, even for our own fellowship, Churches of Christ, an incredible journey to see that the church has been on for centuries. But every time there is a revival within the universal church, that's the whole church, anytime there has been a revival, two things have always been present. One, a tremendous amount of prayer, a prayer for revival. The second thing that's always been present is a study in the book of Romans. So watch out, church. Some crazy is going to start happening, I promise you. (laughs) But you look all the way back to around 1500, Martin Luther and the Reformation movement. He was in deep prayer about change, wanting to give God glory in his life, and he was studying the book of Romans or the Wesleyan movement in England during the 1700s when the Enlightenment age developed and a new spiritual revival happened in England and eventually spread to America. Romans chapter 1, Paul is introducing himself to believers that he's never met before. He's never been to Rome. He doesn't know these people. The only thing he really knows about them is their good reputation that's already come his way. It's a group of Christians, people who profess Jesus Christ. They're Jews and Gentiles meeting in one home together, one church for one cause, and that's to tell the message of Jesus Christ, to talk about the empty cross and the empty grave. And so Paul, in return, wants to tell them some things about himself. This is who I am, Paul says. And a lot of scholars would say the hinge point of the letter to the Roman church is found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. 
Paul wants to remind them that there's power in the cross. We are right before God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Righteousness of God is made known to us through Jesus Christ, and it's by our faith in what he's already done for us. What saves us is Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not the religious rules that you and I at times can find ourselves checking off on the clipboard. It's not the, the heritage and the traditions that we have within our own faith movements. It's not the name on the front of the building or, or we're not saved by the Jewish law itself. I mean, Paul even points back to the Old Testament, to Old Testament prophets when he quotes Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 where he says, the righteous will live by faith. You see, our righteousness is not our good deeds. It's not our good life. It's not checking things off. It's not how right we believe we are doctrinally in our view of a particular text. But our rightness before God is solely placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes us right. He is the one who has gone to bat for us and in his broken body and his blood that cleanses and protects us each and every day. You see, that is the gospel. That is the good news, church. That we have the Son of God who has gone to bat for us and we no longer have to worry about our rightness before God because he has cleansed us of the things that would separate us from God. But this idea of gospel, of good news especially to the church in Rome. They would have understood what Paul was doing with the word there. Because the first century had a different connotation politically for the idea of good news, for the idea of gospel. That word was typically used to introduce a new emperor, a new king in Rome, someone who was coming to the scene and would change everything for everyone. He was going to do things a brand new way. He was going to fix everything that was broken. But Paul takes that word and he uses it in a spiritual mindset. Paul's version of the gospel is to introduce the best king. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who will absolutely make everything new beyond your wildest imagination. See, the gospel is the good news of God's work of salvation through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is more than just the four gospels at the front end of our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul says that it was proclaimed by Old Testament prophets. All of them were pointing toward four to a man who would come and rescue us, a man who would put his life on the line, someone who would deliver us, an incredibly awesome Messiah who would make us right before our creator because he wanted to make all of creation right. But you and I know that we have had moments in our life where we've been a little embarrassed, maybe a little shy about telling the story maybe reluctant about revealing who we maybe really were. I mean, think about the last time you were ashamed in your life. You've got an image there in your mind, and it may be one that no one else knows about, not even your spouse, but you've got it there. We tend to associate that moment with guilt, but it also could be embarrassment. Researchers say that the one thing that our embarrassing moments have in common is unwanted attention. 
You've had those moments before when you kind of flushed red, when you wished you could hide in a corner, that you could run away. Uh, You've had those moments in your life where you have felt embarrassed, where you have felt guilty, where you have wanted to just disappear. I used to enjoy riding my bike when I lived in Oklahoma and Kansas City, but the very last time I rode my bike was in Kansas City. I'd gotten up before work one day. The sun wasn't quite up. Always wore my helmet. I want to always put that out there for the youth group. They know. <laughs> Wear your helmet. But I had a little three-mile jaunt I did around our neighborhood on the sidewalk. And I remember this particular day, I was thinking a lot about ministry, phone calls to make, emails to send, people I needed to get in touch with, curriculum I needed to, to look at. Where are we going on the calendar? All of those things in my head. And I began my journey around the neighborhood, uh, pedaling all the while, of course, I got about two-thirds of the way through my journey, uh, and again, not paying attention to much of anything, just thinking about ministry, and there's a a corner there where you turn, there's a Starbucks, and it starts a downhill slope, and so I could typically get up uh, to about 25 miles an hour riding my bike, and I was thinking about all of these things, and I had passed this area a hundred times, but this day, I had blanked out. I had forgotten what the road looked like, still on the sidewalk. I had forgotten that there was a telephone pole right beside the sidewalk. And at the top of that telephone pole was a steel guide wire. And I'm riding along thinking about ministry, about 25 miles an hour, and about five yards from that wire, it comes into view. Focus. Wow. I try to swerve. It catches the handle on my bar, turns my bike this way. I shot right over the top hit my head on the, came right down on my head, bike flips up on top of me, I skin my knee up pretty bad, and I'm not worried if I broke my leg, what's going on, does my bike work? No, what do I do? I jump up, pick the bike up. Did anybody see that? (laughs) The bike would not work anymore. I walked home, pushing my bicycle, acting like I was getting some running in. You've had those moments before. Embarrassment. Ashamed of maybe something you chose to do, some, some story out there. And Paul realizes, realizes that there is, there is an embarrassing element in the gospel because it's so countercultural. It's so different than the script the world gives you and I to read that it calls attention to us. It creates sometimes unwarranted, unwanted attention. And the church in Rome that Paul is writing to, they're getting some unwanted attention right now. See, Rome was the world power. It was the seat of everything civilized. There were about a million people living in Rome at this time, and Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero was a perverted, brutal man who hated Christians. Some scholars say that he burnt part of Rome down in order to make room for a new palace he wanted to build, but he blamed the fire on Christians and the persecution was on. Unwanted attention. There were were some reasons why citizens of Rome hated Christians, and one is that it was a polytheistic culture based upon Greek mythology. And so there were temples and altars everywhere, all over Rome. You could worship a multitude of different gods. You see, Rome was also an inclusive 
group. And so although they had conquered peoples within their world, they would allow them to continue worship, continue to worship their own gods as long as you added one more god, and that god was Caesar. If you add our king to your pantheon, you can worship whoever you want to, but you look at Christians, and they are monotheistic. We only worship one true God. We will not worship multiple. No, there's only one. And this incredibly tolerant society was intolerant of people who had only one God, especially when that one God was not Caesar. You see, Rome was also hedonistic in its culture. Hedonism means you're just living for the moment. You're living for for pleasure. And they were incredibly high, sexually immoral society. The things that they did in Rome are illegal in our country today. They only valued people who could bring them pleasure. And so the elderly were marginalized. Widows, marginalized. The sick, marginalized. It's only about me and the day. And then all of a sudden, the Christians come on the scene who believe and tell a story, a gospel story that is 100% against the status quo. It is absolutely different than the world around them. Now, you and I learned about Jesus in multiple and different ways. Maybe, maybe a mom or dad brought you along in the storyline. Maybe a next-door neighbor brought you to VBS one day. Maybe it was your grandparents or an aunt and an uncle. Someone told you about Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to first-generation Christians. They've got no support other than themselves. They don't know what's coming. They only know that they want to imitate Jesus in every way, and so they feel awkward in this society. They feel alone in this society, and you have had those feelings before haven't you? Moments where you felt isolated, alone. Am I the only one that feels this way? Robin was telling me a story last year where she works. Um, Everyone in her building knows that uh, she is a Christian woman and then she's also the pastor's wife. And there was a crisis moment one particular day and one of her coworkers looked at her and said, why don't you just go pray about it? You've had those moments before where you have been made fun of because of your life and the way you want to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe it's in your own family. Maybe you're the only one who believes. Maybe you're the only one who makes a decision every Sunday to be a part of a family faith group. And so when Thanksgiving and Christmas roll around, they're kind of nudging you and making fun. You've had those moments of unwanted attention. Those moments where you wished Wow, I wish it could be different. Paul, in his letter, if you remember, he's a Christian, but before that, he was a Jew. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an incredible man who hunted down other Christians. But you read through the book of Acts, and you see his conversion, and then how his life played out. Paul, once he became a disciple of Jesus Christ, fully committed to that and became the guy who wished some of the attention would go away because story after story, you see a guy who professes the story of Jesus Christ and he is put in prison. He's beaten. He starts riots in town. He's stoned and left for dead. 
And Paul wants this church to understand the level of surrender that you and I are called to. And so he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Romans, and he says, This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Now, some versions say a servant of Jesus Christ. But understand the word that Paul uses here in the Greek means slave. Paul could have used five or six other different Greek words if he really wanted to be servant. But he wants the church to understand the level of surrender in his own life to God. And slave, that's an embarrassing word, isn't it? Not a proud moment. But the church would have understood that word. You see, in Rome, about 300,000 slaves lived and were owned by the other free people in Rome. And within that house church, there absolutely would have been a bunch of slaves who made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. They would have fully understood exactly what Paul was talking about. Because you see, a, a servant works for someone. A slave is owned by someone. And in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul reminds the church and us today that we are all slaves to something. We're either slaves of things that bring death or we are slaves to Jesus Christ who brings life. I would rather be a slave to Jesus Christ. If Paul indicates again his letter of surrender, he says, look, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. Nothing ever changes in that. You see, slaves don't negotiate with the master. Oh, I don't do windows. I don't clean bathrooms. Sunday morning, it's a little early for me to get out of bed. Slaves don't negotiate. There is a master, and you are not it. It is Jesus Christ. See, Paul knew people weren't rejecting or accepting his message either way. He was simply the carrier. His master had told him what to do, and he wanted to tell that story of Jesus Christ everywhere that he went. It was his job to deliver that message. And so he says in verses 14 and 15, For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome too, to preach the good news. Paul says, I'm two different things. One, I am obligated. Secondly, he says, I am eager to tell you the story. Because I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. Now that English word obligated in the Greek It means indebted to. And we hear that word, obligate or in debt, and we think of money or we may think of time along the way, but Paul had a totally different idea about what that looks like. And you and I have made those pinky promises on the playground, haven't we? I'll be your friend for life. I'll always be there for you. Oh, we'll do this and that together. Paul is saying, I've made a promise to Jesus Christ. I'm obligated to tell his story. It's the idea that someone has given you something and it's your job to take that something and deliver it to someone else. It's not on you. It's not a 
of throwing you away or accepting you. You're simply the messenger. And Paul calls all the church to remember the gospel message that we've been called to tell, whether in word or deed. He says, I want you to be joyful in your life. I want you to to live out how God's called you to live in his son, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, now that he's kind of built this up, he gets to verse 16 and 17. And Paul says, because I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. And this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. Paul says, no, I am not ashamed of that cross. I'm not ashamed of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And bring on the unwanted attention because I have a master. And he's told me to share that message of hope to all of his creation who would possibly hear me out. You see, the gospel is the power of God at work through Jesus Christ for everyone who believes. What makes the gospel relevant is not that it's like our culture, but in fact, that it is the absolute opposite. And with that message comes a joyful message, a message of healing, a message of forgiveness, of grace and mercy, a message of love. And so, church, this morning, with Paul's words, I want to admonish us and encourage us to not be ashamed. To live our life like Paul decided to, to say, listen, everything matters, and I'm going to open my mouth, I'm going to create within myself, through the, through the Holy Spirit's working in me, a person that Jesus would look at and say, that's my guy, that's my gal. They're sharing the message of hope in ways that that only they can do. They're using their gift sets, their talents, their words to bring other people to the cross. They're sharing bread with others. No, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that does incredible work within me. This morning, I'm hoping that if there's something in your life that has been embarrassing, that has stopped you from sharing that story, that today you will be convicted to leave that behind and say, I'm going to begin living my life for the one who gave his life for me. I'm going to do that. Paul is admonishing the church in Rome and us today to do that same exact thing, no matter the unwanted attention, no matter what that does for you in your life, that we have this special love within us to pass around to all those who would listen. I'm going to invite the praise team back to the stage at this time. Our shepherds and their wives will be gathered along the wall of this room, and as we sing this song, my guess is there are some in this room that maybe you've got a speed bump in your life. You've got something there that's, that's making it difficult for you to share your story. And I want to encourage you as we sing this song, you would go to one of our shepherds and let, let them lay hands on you, let them pray for you and over you that that would be removed from your life, that you would be absolutely convicted and on fire to do exactly what Paul's admonishing us to do. Equally, maybe in your own life with this past week's events, maybe you're struggling with grief and sorrow, and I want to encourage you guys to go pray with one of our shepherds, that you would have peace in your life, that you would be able to move forward 
in your life, that you would be able to look around to see others that might be in the same situation and bond together. I want to also remind you as a church that as a staff, we're here all week long and we'd love to talk to you, whether you come in, whether you call, whatever it may be, in order to help you in the process of this grieving. We thank you for being here today to worship with us, but don't be ashamed. Let's stand and sing together.